It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Sandra Smith. I'm Trey Gowdy. I'm Shannon Bream, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, September 8th, 2022. I'm Lisa Brady. The probe of a former president has the current attorney general under scrutiny. The thing I think that people are most angry about is that we don't have equal justice under the law, that we have uh, a different quality of justice depending on what people's political ideology and partisan affiliations are. I'm Chris Foster. The National Football League season starts tonight. The Patriots are always intriguing. Tom Brady in Tampa Bay, Aaron Rodgers back in Green Bay for another year. Uh, still certainly seem at the top of their game, so uh, can't wait to get started. We're talking with Fox Sports announcer Kenny Albert. And I'm Joe Concha. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. An imaginary clock is ticking for the U.S. Attorney General, created by an unwritten rule about the timing of investigations that could impact or be seen as trying to impact an election. Former President Trump isn't on any ballots in November, but is considered a factor in the midterms, with Democrats attacking MAGA Republicans. Trump remains under investigation over the handling of government documents, which his former Attorney General Bill Barr says should not have been Trump's Florida home. The classified stuff are government documents and they go to the government. There is no scenario legally under which the president gets to keep the government documents, whether it's classified or unclassified. Days after U.S. District Judge Aileen Cannon approved Trump's motion for a third party review of materials seized at Mar-a-Lago, the Washington Post reported more details about top secret sensitive documents, including one involving a foreign government's nuclear capabilities. But Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio, vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, says he and other lawmakers typically briefed on intelligence matters were never approached about a possible threat or urgent attempt to retrieve documents. Instead, what we get is these constant leaks, and the only reason to leak to the media is to influence the narrative, which tells you this is being politicized, which is doing damage to the FBI, the Justice Department, to important institutions to our country. A lawyer for the former president also condemning leaks in the investigation in a written statement warning that damage to public confidence in the integrity of the system can't be underestimated. I think it's a big problem having been in the shoes of the prosecutors. Andy McCarthy is the former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. It's always a big problem when there are leaks in these cases because it's not really something that the government lawyers can usually do anything about. There's too much information sharing in the government. I mean, there's too many people who are aware of uh, what's going on in investigations and Some of them can't help themselves but share that with the media. And, you know, the big problem for especially for, you know, people who've been critics of the decision that uh, Judge Cannon made, uh, one of the points that she made was that, you know, there's been leaking here and the government lawyers agree that there had been leaking and it's all regrettable and everything. But beyond being regrettable, the problem with leaks is it's a selective view of what the case is that's intended to prejudice the person who's under investigation. And what it tends toward is something the Justice Department can never want when it's at this stage of an investigation, which is more transparency and more disclosure, because you can't equitably 
go to a court and say, we need absolute investigative confidentiality while people are leaking at Maine Justice and the FBI and wherever else they're leaking. You know, what a judge will tell you as the prosecutor when you go in and say, we can't disclose that at this time, it'll blow our investigation. A good judge is going to look at the prosecutor and say, well, maybe you ought to mention that to the people at Maine Justice and the FBI. What about Attorney General Merrick Garland's handling of this situation? Should he or could he have done something differently? Well, I don't know that you can do much about the leaking, but as far as the rest of it is concerned, you know, Garland made a decision to make a public statement in this case, and he could have not made one, and everybody would have understood that because that would be adherence to Justice Department protocol, which is that you don't speak publicly uh, about investigations. You never confirm that they're ongoing, and even when they get confirmed, you never speak about the evidence against uncharged people. But he decided to give up the advantage he has in not having to speak, that you know no one expects you to speak if the rules are that you're not supposed to. He decided to make a statement. And I think once you decide you're going to go that route, it's really incumbent on you to address the things that people are concerned about. And I, I think what people wanted to know, if you're doing an unprecedented search on the residence of a former president of the United States, what they want to know is why was this necessary and why now? And I think if he had said that, people would have understood it. They may not have agreed that a search warrant was the appropriate thing to do at that point, but at least they would have come away saying, okay, well, they didn't just go from zero to DEFCON 5 in the blink of an eye. They actually did, you know, there were a series of steps where they reasonably tried to get the information back. And then they ultimately drew what was not a, a rational conclusion uh, that if they didn't do a search warrant, there was no other way they'd ever get it back. The attorney general still has many choices to make uh, in terms of this ongoing investigation. But is it too close to the midterm elections now to have any of this happening, even though Trump isn't on the ballot? You know, how much of the unwritten rule that pertains to that um, about something being too close to an election, um, how much is that taken to heart in the Justice Department? Yeah, I think. It's not my favorite rule. They call it the 60-day rule, and they generally adhere to it. They basically try not to take unnecessary public steps that could have an impact on an election because uh, we don't want to have a situation where it looks like the Justice Department and law enforcement in general is deciding our electoral process. And, you know, frankly, we've had so much abuse of that in the last decade that I think it's incumbent on the Justice Department to go the extra mile and try not to allow that to happen. But what that unwritten rule is about is public steps in furtherance of an investigation. You know, things like arrests or search warrants or things that are going to come to public attention. It doesn't mean that you take no steps in furtherance of the investigation. It doesn't mean that things get frozen. Grand juries don't stop. The FBI doesn't stop interviewing witnesses. So it's not that there's a complete suspension, but I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for people to get uh, arrested or indicted during this two month window. Mm -hmm. Does a decision to prosecute in this probe surrounding the former president, does a decision to prosecute hinge on the level of sensitivity in the documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago or the fact that there were documents there at all? The handling of you know those documents in general and, and who they belong to. Well, I think certainly the level of 
the classified documents has a lot to do with why you do the investigation and how much vigor you put into it. But in terms of, you know, once you decide that there is criminal liability, you don't need to prove classified documents for that. So, for example, the records retention part of this, which the Justice Department tells us is, you know, just as much a part of their investigation as the protection of uh, the reclamation and protection of classified documents. When the Presidential Records Act, uh, which is what we're under, was first enacted in, in the late 1970s, it didn't have any criminal law provisions in it. It was basically guidelines that were statutory, but they were supposed to be, you know, worked out between the National Archives and the former presidents in terms of the handling of the records. What the Justice Department now says is there's a, a criminal statute that applies to all government files that makes it a crime to remove or, um, you know, convert them to your own purposes, uh, do anything to manipulate them and so on. And they believe they can stitch that uh, crime together with the Presidential Records Act, because presidential records are clearly government records, government files, uh, and they can prosecute on that basis. And even though I think you can make a good argument that Congress didn't intend the Presidential Records Act to be enforced that way, literally, there's no reason that the statute that they're talking about can't be used. So if they decided to pull the trigger and bring a case like that, they don't have to get into classified information at all. But I don't think they would do a case like that unless there was a bigger, more serious problem in the first place. What about the potential reaction to a decision on whether to prosecute or not? Is that something that would typically be factored into the decision? Because, you know, Senator Lindsey Graham, for instance, has said he's worried about the country if Trump is prosecuted, that there would be riots in the streets. In every case that the government prosecutes, the issue of prosecutorial discretion rears its head, which means the two questions that have to be answered in every case are, do we have sufficient evidence that we could prove a crime in court? In other words, are you convinced that you have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt such that a rational jury could find a person guilty? If you answer that question, you always have to move on to the second question, which is, is a prosecution here in the public interest. And what that means is you have to weigh the upside of doing the prosecution versus any downside of doing it. And, you know, clearly the stakes are much higher when you're talking about a potential prosecution of not only a former president, but somebody who could be on the ballot the next time around, because there's obviously going to be at least some sentiment in the country among Trump supporters that this is a political gambit in order to sideline him from running for election. I don't happen to believe that. I think actually the Democrats would like Trump to run, but there are some people who are going to see it that way. And because of that, and because of the history that we've had in the last decade, where I think a very good argument can be made that we have a two-tiered system of justice, where if you're a progressive Democrat, you almost get away with murder. Uh, and if you're a Republican, and particularly a Trump supporter, you get a very different and much harsher quality of justice. The thing I think that people are most angry about is that we don't have equal justice under the law, that we have uh, a different quality of justice depending on what people's political ideology and partisan affiliations are. And Garland's going to have to weigh that heavily. And it's a serious thing to weigh. 
Do you think the former president should be worried about this right now? Yeah, I do. I think that the Justice Department probably thinks that they have enough evidence to charge him. And you either have the records lawfully or you don't. It's pretty clear that he's got, you know, leaving the classified information stuff aside, uh, he's got hundreds of pages of government documents that should have been turned over to the National Archives and weren't. They have a statute that says, you know, if you convert that to your own use or you remove it um, from the government files without authority, they can prosecute you for that. That's a pretty straightforward case. Uh, On obstruction of justice, you know, they gave him a grand jury subpoena in May, which said, you know, we need you to give us all the documents that have classified markings on it. Uh, And in lieu of a grand jury appearance, we also want from your records custodian a sworn statement that says you've done a diligent search and these are all the records. And then they have the FBI come down to Mar-a-Lago and they give them 38 documents and they say this is it. They give them the sworn statement. And it turns out there's over 100 more. And there's good reason to think that they may have known that at the time that they provided the 38. So anytime they have enough evidence where they could make a rational decision that they could prove you guilty in court. And let's remember, a D.C. jury uh, in a Trump case is going to be a big advantage for the government if it happens. Then I think you need to be worried that they may decide in their discretion to charge that case. Former assistant U.S. attorney Andy McCarthy, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Lisa. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is Joe Concha with your Fox News commentary coming up. There's your Fox Sports football music. The National Football League season starts tonight as the Los Angeles Rams defend their Super Bowl title and 31 other teams try to take that title away. Kenny Albert's back calling games on Fox. He's the only broadcaster right now calling play-by-play in pro football, baseball, basketball, and hockey. He's been with Fox since the network started carrying football. It's always so exciting when uh, when the calendar turns to September and the weather gets a little chillier, which isn't necessarily a, a good thing, but it, it does have that first day of school feel. Sunday's his 441st NFL game on network TV. You know, I think back to, to 1994, and it's hard to believe it was 28 years ago now when I worked my first game on Fox out in Anaheim between the Rams and the Arizona Cardinals. And in preparing for this week's opener, we have New Orleans at Atlanta. It it still has that same feeling. Uh, We all get just as excited. Uh, You follow your teams during the preseason. It's funny, just like coaches and players, you know, you focus so much on that first game and probably over prepare as broadcasters because you have the assignment about six weeks in advance. So you have all this information stored up and then the first game ends and then there's another one. <laughs> and then you had six uh, days, six and a half days later. Right. Yep. So uh, I think coaches probably feel the same way. Any teams you're particularly looking forward to seeing or calling this year? Anybody catch your eye? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the amount of 
star quarterbacks that have changed teams, whether it's Russell Wilson going to Denver, Carson Wentz now in Washington, uh, Matt Ryan in Indianapolis, and, and a couple of others. I think uh, some of those storylines are, are very intriguing. My crew, along with Jonathan Vilma and Shannon Spake, we have the Saints and Falcons, as I mentioned. Uh, so you have uh, New Orleans uh, led by a head coach other than Sean Payton for the first time in a decade and a half. And then Atlanta quarterback by uh, somebody other than Matt Ryan, you know, as their starter for the first time in a decade and a half. So some intriguing storylines there. Uh, Mariota and Jameis Winston, the starting quarterbacks in our game who were picked one, two in the draft uh, seven years ago. But when you look around the league, so many great storylines, uh, the Bills Rams opener, can Buffalo make that next step and, and get to a Super Bowl? Uh, Kansas City, they've hosted four straight AFC championship games. I worked a preseason game there, and, and Patrick Mahomes looked like he was in midseason form already. Uh, the Patriots are always intriguing. Tom Brady in Tampa Bay, Aaron Rodgers back in Green Bay for another year. Uh, still certainly seem at the top of their game, so uh, can't wait to get started. Is it fair to say that more fans this year have a reasonable shot at, at their team getting into the playoffs. It seems like there's more parity this year than there have been in some other years. I think so. I mean, you look at the fact that there has not been a repeat Super Bowl champion in, in 17 years now, 17, 18 years since the Patriots, the 2003 and 2004 seasons. Every year, uh, there seem to be five or six new teams in the playoffs. There are now more playoff teams. They expanded the postseason a year ago, so that gives uh, fans in so many more cities hope all the movement with the quarterbacks, as I mentioned. So, you know, I think all those factors, you look at the NFC East, there hasn't been a repeat division winner in, in quite some time. So um, it's great for the fans. It, it gives, like I said, fans in, in so many more cities hope heading into the regular season. Look at the Bengals. I mean, they, they go all the way to the Super Bowl last year, Cincinnati, Buffalo, a couple of other franchises had not won playoff games, Cleveland in a long time until the last few years. And, uh, now some of those teams are the ones that feel they can go all the way. Yeah, that last repeat champ, the Patriots, led then by Tom Brady, still kicking, age 45. He's gonna. He said he's going to join the Fox family whenever he decides to finally stop playing. I mean, who knows when that's going to be. Now, he took this 11-day, or whatever it was, preseason break. You could say, look, who cares? He's the greatest of all time. He, he doesn't need that much preseason. Um, any take on whatever drama that might be? You know, I think once he got back, uh, it was probably full speed ahead. You know, I've seen... Some of the stories about, uh, you know, why he took that break and who knows what, what, you know, in reality, what what the reason was. But I think it's similar to a player getting injured when when they're gone. It's sort of uh, out of sight, out of mind for that time period. And then they're back and uh, the team moves forward. So I, I don't think that'll be an issue. Um, obviously, he's led the Buccaneers to uh, tremendous success over the last two seasons, winning the Super Bowl two years ago. So. Uh, it seems like he's back in, in the rhythm and, and getting ready for the start of the regular season. Is it Are guys younger now? Do, are they lo- younger, longer, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like I saw a picture of Kenny Stabler the other day. He was a you know, Hall of Fame quarterback. This is at the end of his career, this picture. He was with the Saints, and he was, I don't know, 38-ish years old, and he looked like he's 62 compared to guys today. Um, are guys are is just conditioning and stuff like that just better now? Yeah, absolutely. I think and that's funny. I see pictures of players, uh, not only in football, hockey, for example, who were in their late 20s uh, back in the 50s and 60s, and they look, look like they were 40. I think so much has changed, Chris, with the training methods. Uh, players used to go to training camp in, in most sports to get into shape, but now it's year-round, uh, working out during the offseason, training, 
And if you're not in shape, when you get to training camp, you probably won't make the team um, unless you're a superstar. So uh, it's become sports have become year round, you know, in the, in the fifties, sixties players had other jobs in the off season to supplement their salary. And, and they weren't necessarily working out and keeping in shape. So that's definitely uh, been a factor. I think they're faster and stronger these days. And uh, so many of the training methods that have been introduced over the last 10, 20 years have helped lead to that. I think they eat better. Uh, you look at Tom Brady on, on his TB12 program, he goes to sleep at nine o'clock, only eats certain foods. So uh, that that's definitely uh, been a major factor. Um, Kenny gambling has always been a part of football. Uh Fantasy football had its roots in the 60s. Of course, it's gotten a lot more popular in the last, whatever, 20-ish years. Um, a, a lot of people care about their fantasy team more than any real team. Um, are you just grateful for the added engagement there, or does, does it does it change your approach as a broadcaster, that ancillary stuff? It, it does not change my approach. Um, I've always actually been pretty big on on passing along statistics to the viewers because I think that's a big part of uh, tuning into the game, uh, keeping track of how many yards your running back has or what your quarterback numbers are even before the, the fantasy aspect came into play. But, you know, it's funny. Uh, I have a couple of kids who are now 19 and 23. So they're a little bit older, but when they were younger and, and some of their friends would come over a lot of times, this generation of, of, of youngsters, they don't have a favorite team. They just root for players. Yeah. They root for either the players who are on their fantasy team or who they play in the video games. And I think a big part of it is the fact that now you could see pretty much any game wherever you want, whenever you want. Um, back when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s in the New York area, we only got the Jets and Giants games on TV and then the Monday night national game. That was it. Uh, but now with, with satellite TV and the various league packages, you can watch any game. You can watch highlights on your phone. I think the younger generation doesn't necessarily sit there and watch one game. They're watching the Red Zone channel where they bounce around from game to game when a team's inside the 20. They're watching highlights on their phone, on their computer, on their iPad. So I think that's a big part of it. The fact that you're not only tied down to watching your one or two local teams in your market. Uh, Kenny, I was reading your bio before talking to you today. Um, you're in the top 20 of games called on networks. I'm not sure exactly what, what constitutes a network at this point anymore. But anyway, uh, in baseball and football and hockey, fourth for total games called across the four big sports. Uh, I guess going into football this right now, you're I guess before before Sunday, you're at 1,261. Is that right? Um, do you know who's ahead? About right. <laughs> do, do you happen to know who's ahead of you? We were kicking around the office. Who's called more well, games than you? Yeah, I have seen those lists, so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with it. Um, it, it is mind-boggling. I, I feel like I just started out calling minor league hockey in, in 1990 down in Baltimore, and then a number of us were, were really in the right place at the right time when, when Fox and Rupert Murdoch decided to put in a bid for the NFC package in 94. So it, it is crazy to think back to the number of games, and uh, I think I had 450 on the NFL side last year. But, it, you know – to me, I never feel like I'm going to work. There's a lot of travel. There's a lot of preparation, obviously, that goes into it. I have a checklist leading up to each and every game of various uh, things that I do to get ready and prepare. But it just doesn't feel like I'm going to work. I could be sitting in an office doing something I hate. So uh, the numbers uh, don't seem real when, when I look at them as far as the number of games. But uh, um, I have seen those lists, and it's, it's pretty neat to take a look at from well, time to time. You've obviously compiled enough stories to, to, to write a book, and you've got one coming out 
uh, next year. Did you just feel like this was the time, or did you have time on your hands with with COVID? I know there's a lot of a lot of COVID books got written, or did you say you know let's let's sit down and write a book? Well, the pandemic was a big part of it, to be honest. Um, I have all these stories, and I speak to high school and college students all the time. There are various sports casting and broadcasting camps every summer, and they all ask great questions. And I always find myself giving the same answers. Uh, now it's different. It's different kids, so they they only hear it once. But I I hear the same stories that I'm telling you know 50 times. So I thought it might be a good idea to put pen to paper. It's it's called a mic for all seasons. Um, and it's a compilation of stories from from the 32 year broadcast career, uh, stories about big games, about my 250 analysts that I've worked with, uh, travel stories. And, and I certainly have a few. Um, so hopefully people will enjoy it. it comes out in about a year. And it was a lot of fun to to put it together. And, uh, you know, can't wait to get it out there. But when it comes out, I hope uh, you'll come back and talk to us. If, if we if we don't talk to you uh, between now and then, Kenny oh, Albert, absolutely. Kenny Albert, absolutely. Fox Sports. Uh, thanks a lot, man, for coming on uh, the Fox News Rundown. Great, thanks very much, Chris. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Joe Concha. What's on your mind? Well, we start this commentary out with a simple question. Why is it almost always it comes down to Peter Ducey and Jackie Heinrich asking the only truly challenging questions during the White House press briefings? Exhibit A came earlier this week when Ducey cornered White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre on her being a repeated election denier. You tweeted in 2016 Trump stole an election. I was waiting, Peter, when you were going to ask me that question. Wait a minute. You're telling me that no other correspondent in that room was aware that Jean-Pierre's past chilling threats to democracy were all out there on Twitter? I mean, it's all in writing. And it's funny because Jean-Pierre said she knew the question was coming, yet had no lucid response. Just that, quote, that's a ridiculous comparison, unquote, which is like the White House version of, I know you are, but what am I? And, of course, we saw almost nothing of this telling exchange on the other cable news outlets. I wonder why that is. Because that exchange steps on the very same narrative they're pushing that the White House is pushing, that supporters of President Trump are semi-fascists. That's only 74 million people. So remember, election deniers, they're bad, but not those who say the same thing after a Republican candidate wins. I'm Joe Concha. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.